Hello, hello, welcome back. Welcome to a new episode of The Lee Show. It's great to be back here with all of you. Did you see in the news this week this guy, Casey White, who escaped from prison in Alabama, I think? This guy, six foot nine, 330 pounds. He. Uh, he beat his brother in the face with the handle of a sledgehammer in 2012. And then he carried out a crime spree in 2015, a home invasion, a carjacking, a police chase, attempted murder, robbery, murder, serving a 75-year sentence. He's covered in Nazi tattoos. He's an active member of something called the Southern Brotherhood. That's a white supremacist gang in Alabama. So this sounds like a fun guy. 69330, that is a big fucking dude. So this guy, he's in prison, bad, bad guy, and he starts a jailhouse romance with the director of the prison, whose name is Vicky White. Same last name, not related. Vicky White, and you gotta see a picture of her. She looks like what you would expect. She's 17 years older than he is. She's 56. He's 39. And they start stooping in prison somehow. She's got these bangs and no top lip. And it's just upper upper lip, top. I don't know what the difference is between upper lip and top lip. And 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 they're banging in prison. And then she says last week that she's taking him to an appointment. And he gets into the prison police car and then they disappear and apparently they'd been planning this together for a while she had bought a car not a very subtle car an orange ford suv and they go on the lamb and they've been on the lamb for 11 days now if you're gonna do this there's a way to do it and a way not to do it i've seen enough tv and movies to know there's a way to do this what you don't do is stay in a motel and and buy a fake mustache and disguise yourself. What you do is you do what Eric Rudolph did. Remember, Eric Rudolph was the the nut who bombed those abortion clinics and he bombed the Atlanta Olympics in the 90s. And then he disappeared in the woods of North Carolina for seven years. And he was able to do that because he planned it in advance. Because he had the food and the supplies and he buried them in barrels, and he hid them, and he hid out for seven years in the woods of North Carolina. That's what you do if you're going to do it. So they went on the lam, 11 days, they made it, and then they were found, big man hunt. So they get into a car chase yesterday with the U.S. Marshals. Finally, the U.S. Marshals ram the back of their car, spin it out, it flips over, in the process, she shoots herself in the head. It's unclear if it was like an accident, shoot herself in the head, or like, a, I, all right, we're caught. I'm going to commit suicide, shoot myself in the head. But she shoots herself in the head, and then they catch him, and he's going back to prison now. Presumably a prison where he can't sleep with the guard. I mean, I guess he could do that anywhere, right? It's got to be hard. Six nine three thirty. What do you do? If you're that guy, well, like, what are the career options? So you get cut from the football team, you get cut from the basketball team. He's not super athletic, so what? Would you become a bouncer? 
a podcaster? Like, what do you, what do you do? This wasn't as exciting as that guy, Brian Laundry, the one who uh, was hiding underneath his parents' garden after he killed his girlfriend. But, but this was a good one. 11 days on the lamb. Good for them. Good for them. Well, we, w- we wish him well. I wonder if he's going to come up with some novel excuse for, for this or if he's just going to blame the woman. He's probably going to say he had nothing to do with it and she captured him and took him on the run because she just wanted the D. Maybe he'll blame it on Havana Syndrome. Do you see there was a Law & Order last week about Havana Syndrome? The new Law & Orders are pretty good, by the way. Uh, so they did want... Yeah, Havana Syndrome... I've talked about this on the live show on Thursday nights. Havana Syndrome is this like mysterious fake thing where these diplomats at the American embassy in Havana, Cuba, is it an embassy, a consulate? I don't know. We don't, I don't know what the diplomatic relations are there. So the, 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 the diplomats at the American building there started hearing these weird noises and they got headaches and they were convinced that the Russians had some kind of directed energy sonic weapon that was shooting sound waves at their head, making them insane and giving them crazy headaches. And a bunch of people at the embassy started reporting this. And then they, people at other embassies reported this was happening and they were convinced it was the Russians because everything's the Russians. And so they recorded the sound and then like a whole bunch of, I don't know, sonic experts or who knows. They they were like, this is conclusively crickets and, and it was all bullshit. But but they all swear it was Havana syndrome and it made them crazy. And there was a law and order last week where the guy is like, I I killed somebody because Havana syndrome because the, the sound waves made me crazy. And I wonder if this guy, if this uh, this guy, Casey White, is going to say, well, I, I, it was Havana syndrome. That'd be a fun excuse. You've like never been a diplomat. You just uh, it's Havana syndrome because who knows what is Havana syndrome? It's bullshit. I wonder, you know, we've talked a lot about crime policy. We've talked about crime in urban areas. Murder rates have, of course, declined for a long time. Kind of a blip in the last couple of years as it's gone back up. Whether you blame that on progressive DAs or whatever. Crime has over time declined quite a bit. There's a bunch of reasons people have explanations people have for why that's happened. One that's, I thought, pretty innovative from Stephen Levitt, the Freakonomics guy. His idea is crime started to decline in the early 90s, and it has declined steadily since then. And his theory is that it's because Roe versus Wade was in 19, what, 73? 72, 73. And so all those kids who were unwanted, who would have turned into criminals, starting in like 1973, they started getting aborted. And so by the early 90s, these kids would have been turning into 17, 18-year-olds. And now they're not in existence to go commit crimes because they were never born. And so kids who would have been criminals aren't born and so that's the reason why crime declined. That's an interesting theory. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's an interesting theory. I mean, by that logic, 
if Roe is overturned, we would see an uptick in crime. There's maybe some credibility to it. I have no idea. Another theory you might you might uh, consider is that there are advances in medical technology. And that's why the murder rate has declined. That doesn't explain all the other crimes declining. But you might say, well, we're better at saving people after they're shot or stabbed. And so what would have been murder becomes attempted murder because we saved someone. And that's the reason that the murder rate declines. Maybe. I guess you would then expect to see an increase in the attempted murder rate, just as you see a decrease in the murder rate. I think it comes down to what I've said before. Broken windows policing works. Broken windows policing is the theory that you gotta focus on the small stuff first. If there's an abandoned building and the windows are broken, it sends a signal of disorder. It sends a signal that disorder is acceptable and that leads to more disorder. It creates an environment where people feel comfortable committing other crimes. So you got to fix the small stuff. Fix the broken windows. And you prevent the additional disorder. Crime is up. It's in, up in a lot of places. It's very unfortunate. It's up in New York City. I think the worst is in the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. It's up in Bronx. By the way, you, I say Bronx. I don't say the Bronx. That's just I, that's how I learned it. It's just like that's one of the boroughs of Manhattan. Uh, uh, one of the boroughs of New York City is Bronx. There are some areas where I say where I add a the because I think it makes more sense. Instead of saying Grand Central Station, say the Grand Central Station, and it makes sense. Then it's the big central train station. Instead of Broadway as one word, it's the Broadway, the wide street, the city hall. There was an article in the Post last week about how some sort of, I don't know what you call them, hipsters, people moving to New York. What do I know? I don't know if people say hipsters anymore. But anyways, these people have moved to New York and they just call it East Village and West Village instead of the East Village. The West Village. I don't know, somehow that's upsetting people. I don't know. It doesn't seem to bother me. Can hop on the train and go to Yankee Stadium in Bronx. Yankees have been looking good lately. They're 20 and 8. Great start to the season. I wrote a paper, I, I, I wrote an essay on Substack this week about the baseballs. Uh, worth a read. Major League Baseball in 2018 bought Rawlings. Rawlings is the company that makes the baseballs that they use in the major leagues. And uh, and for years, Rawlings did that, and that was fine. And um, look, Major League Baseball... They, they want more eyeballs. They want more attendance. They want more fans, whether it's in person or on TV. They want more eyeballs. And they know that the way to do that is to get more home runs because that's exciting and people want to see home runs. 
So the first thing they did was steroids, right? Late 90s, early 2000s, turned a blind eye. Lots of players used steroids. Then it turned out that that was bad and people didn't like that. So instead, they bought Rawlings and they started fucking with the baseballs. They lowered the seams on the baseballs a little bit. They tightened the baseballs up so they'd be more dense. And what this meant was that starting in 2019, there were more home runs, a a very significant increase in home runs. If you look on the substack, you'll see the graph. I mean, it's a really significant increase in home runs. The pitchers aren't happy about that. It screws up their statistics, means that, that their stats look worse. They're going to get worse contracts, their reputations, their careers are on the line. So they all complain. So then in 2020 and 2021, Major League Baseball did the opposite. They loosened up the balls. But then, of course, the batters complain. Because that means that they can't hit as many home runs. And then in 2022, for this season, they were just like, fuck it, we're going with the gonzo approach here. And all the balls are different. And the pitchers are complaining that they can't predict it, that a ball in the first inning is different from a ball in the third inning. The batters are are going crazy because there's so many more batters getting hit by pitches. The balls are unpredictable. So, so now everybody's pissed off about it. I don't quite understand why they can't just like go back to the way it was because they clearly had a thing that worked. And you know... One of the great things about baseball is the history of it. And the history means that you have 150 years of statistics and data on player performance. And that allows you to compare players over time and say, this player now is as great as this player from 1976. But if they're playing a different game because the baseballs are different, you can't compare the players. And you lose that consistency over time. You lose that comparability. So, look, I love baseball. This is driving me nuts. But, uh, hey, the Yankees up in Bronx. They look good. Off to a good start. Aaron Judge walk off home run last night. And, uh, you know, hopefully the the season continues at, at a good rate like this. Bat Mitzvah planning continues. Uh, for my daughter, we looked at another venue last week that the salesperson for the venue was like Kelly Kapoor from the office. Looked like Kelly Kapoor, sounded like Kelly Kapoor. And she was like, this is just perfect for your aesthetic. You can just here, you can put your logo here and this is just great. And you can just make it match your aesthetic. Saw another venue. It was like a nightclub. Floor was all sticky. Smelled like stale beer. That was a no-go. We've got a lot of the the talent lined up. Got our DJ, of course, my my college roommate, Aaron Browner, the best in the business. Um, I, you know, look, in my mind, this is a big birthday party. It's like a, you're you're studying hard and you're going to work hard and prepare for the bat mitzvah. And it's nice to celebrate that with a party with your friends. This is not going to be a miniature wedding. No fucking way. That's not, I, it's just not in line with my values. But I'm absolutely honored 
to say like, hey, you're getting called up to the Torah and let's have a little party, a nice party to celebrate that. And you can have a few friends and you'll dance and, you, you know, that sounds great to me. Hey, look, maybe the, the venues will be cheaper now that we're in a recession. By the way, I hope you've been listening to me for months. All the times I told you the recession is coming. The recession is here. Stagflation is coming. It's here. The economy sucks. We are not at the bottom. If you are thinking that we're already at the bottom, we are not. We are not at the bottom. Do not start thinking, well, the market was at 4,800 and now it's at 3,900. I should buy back all my stocks. Tech stocks are down. And that doesn't mean they're cheap. They're down because interest rates are going up. So all of those future cash flows are worth a lot less. So it is not yet time to buy. You know, there's a, a concept in investing called ESG. And, um, and I think we should explore ESG. So to understand it, you need a little bit of a, a history lesson. So for years, you would save up your money you work hard, you save up your money, and you go to the brokerage house on Main Street in your town, Charles Schwab or whatever the brokerage house is. And you say, hey, I saved up my money. What do I do with this? And there's some guy there in a suit and tie. And he says, oh, you give it to me. We open an account for you and I'll pick some stocks and we'll invest your money. This guy was a stockbroker and, and he thought he was Warren Buffett. And he would go to the Rotary Club meetings in town, and he was, you know, a, a decent human being. And and he would pick stocks for you. It turned out that guy didn't know how to invest money very well. None of those guys knew how to invest money very well. They would pick all the wrong stocks, and of course, I mean, what, what do they know about picking stocks? Maybe he read some report that says, like, this company is the future. And he, but by the time he's read the report, it's old news. It was old news even when the person who wrote the report wrote it. And so year in and year out, these guys were the last ones to know. They always piled into every trend at the last moment. They were always late. And people got frustrated. They say, hey, I see the stock market's up 10% a year. How come I'm not up 10% a year? What am I paying you for? Well, as it turns out, nothing very useful. And so more and more, these brokers, instead of buying stocks for you, which they weren't good at, they put your money into a kind of fund that would mimic the performance of the entire stock market. And that fund was called an ETF, an exchange traded fund. And you could buy and sell this fund the same way you could buy and sell a stock. It was very easy to do it. And it would track the performance. So if the S&P was up 10%, this ETF was up 10%. So you had no dispersion between your performance and the performance of the market. What do you need this broker for if you can just buy an ETF? Well, people, would, they didn't know they could do that. So they'd still give the money to the broker, and then he'd buy the ETF. And then at the end of the year, he'd say, well, the market was up 10%, and we were up 10%, and how great are we? And he'd take a little fee for himself, and that was that. So this, this ETF 
owns a tiny bit of every single stock in the index. If the index is the S&P 500, that's the most typical broad index of the stock market. Well, you can own a tiny bit of all 500 stocks in the index. And then you mimic the performance of the S&P 500. And the biggest manager of these ETFs is BlackRock. BlackRock manages $10 trillion. That's their assets under management, $10 trillion. The next biggest is Vanguard, also huge in the ETF business. They've got $7 trillion. BlackRock has become the largest owner of every company in America. Think about that for a second. One investment manager is the largest owner of every company in America. Where could it go wrong? Imagine there's an industry with a few competitors, say airlines, American, Delta, United, Southwest. If all four of those airlines are owned by the same investment fund, it's in the interests of the investment fund to minimize competition. You don't benefit from Delta doing really well and United doing poorly. You benefit from all four of them doing better. You want less competition. You want them to all have higher margins. And so common ownership can and should and will lead to anti-competitive behavior. It facilitates anti-competitive behavior. And so firms like BlackRock wield an extraordinary amount of power. And one of the things they've been doing with this power is this trendy new way of investing called ESG. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Factors. And what it means is that instead of just investing in a stock because it's a good business or the, the price is going to go up, you're investing in a stock because they're good stewards of the environment or they're doing whatever is socially fashionable at the moment. Black Lives Matter. They're doing corporate social responsibility, whatever. It's all bullshit. It's vague and it's nebulous. And it's whatever way the wind is blowing, whatever's trendy at the moment. And then BlackRock decides, okay, we'll invest in your business because you're doing the trendy thing, except the trendy thing changes. For a while, ESG funds wouldn't invest in weapons makers because weapons were war and that's bad. But then suddenly the Russians invaded Ukraine and then weapons makers are good and Raytheon is rah-rah Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. Oil was bad. That's not environmental, it's oil. But then suddenly the Russians are invading Ukraine and we need oil, so oil is good. It's all bullshit. And the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, is the guy who is the biggest advocate for this shit. And he's the one who is deciding which companies he'll dole out money to and which ones he won't on behalf of the entire population of America. $10 trillion based on his arbitrary social judgments about what is good and what is bad. War is good. War is bad. Oil. What, it's, it's nonsense. I am skeptical of the concentration of power. That is one of the major themes that we explore on this show. The concentration of power. And Larry Fink has too much power.
you know, I'm, uh, I'm very skeptical of the concentration of power. I believe that the more the United States feels like an oligarchy, where a select few rich, powerful people have control, the worse this country will be. I mean, look at other countries that are oligarchies. It's not good. I don't like too much power concentrated in the hands of Larry Fink and BlackRock. But I'm also troubled by things like the Supreme Court decision in the Citizens United case from 2010. I think the historians will look back on the Citizens United decision and they will say that it was a major turning point for the negative in the history of this country. Citizens United was a case about donating money to politicians. And the the premise of the, the case revolves around free speech. So, historically, you could only donate a certain amount of money to a candidate. If I was a big supporter of, pick, pick a candidate, George Bush, I was allowed to donate like $2,000 to the George Bush campaign. By the way, I didn't donate to the George Bush campaign. I'm just using it as an example. If I were a big supporter of George Bush, I could donate like $2,000 to the George Bush campaign. That was the cap. And the idea was that if you allow people to have unlimited donations, then wealthier people can essentially buy influence because they can donate money to candidates and then they can buy influence. And it allows the wealthy to have a lot more power. To me, that is undemocratic. Now, the flip side to that is donating money to candidates, so they argued, is a form of speech. And restricting the ability to donate to candidates is a restriction of speech. And the Supreme Court in 2010, in a 5-4 to four decision, in the Citizens United case, decided that restricting donations was unconstitutional. It violated the First Amendment rights. And this has led to the creation of what are called super PACs. A PAC is a political action committee. And these PACs raise huge amounts of money for a party or for a candidate, unrestricted, to support that candidate or that party. And this has allowed the rich, this has allowed corporations to have undue influence. It has made America less democratic. It has given too much power to the corporations. It has made us more of an oligarchy. And it's a very fine balance 
Because if you believe in freedom in a very broad sense and the importance of not restricting that freedom, it's very hard to say, yes, we should be restricting the amount that people can donate. Even if you do recognize that that is a form of speech and it is a restriction of speech. Because the reverse of that is worse. The reverse of it, allowing these unlimited donations, is worse. And I am opposed to the idea of concentrating more power in the hands of those with more money. I'm opposed to the idea of Larry Fink deciding what uh, 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 he finds to be attractive from a social perspective and trying to socially engineer the world around him. I think there is some optimal amount of campaign finance that should be allowed. And I think it is a lot less than unlimited. I think it's a lot less than you would expect. This has been a very corrupting influence, and it is one of the worst recent Supreme Court decisions. You know, one of the lessons, I think, of the past couple of years is that those in power are fallible. The people we call experts are fallible. The self-appointed censors, the disinformation police are fallible. The, the Biden campaign, the Biden administration just appointed someone named Jankowitz, Nina Jankowitz. She's now the, like the, the, the disinformation czar. She's the head of Biden's disinformation governance board. That's a dystopian sounding name. That's like some straight out of 1984 thing. And this person, who, who must presume to have the wisdom to know capital T truth when she sees it, to know what is disinformation and what is not, that's, an, that's a, a remarkable degree of arrogance. So naturally, when you get appointed to that kind of a job, the press is going to dig a bit. And it turns out that she has a long history of pushing claims, politicized claims that are thoroughly debunked. Claims that were clearly disinformation. So how can this woman claim to have the expertise, the wisdom, the knowledge to know what's disinformation. Those who claim to have that wisdom are never the ones who do. Because the, the, the folks who think they know what disinformation is, they're the same knuckleheads. The ones who are obsessed with this, who think that they need to censor everyone else, they're the same idiots who pushed all the 
the the theories, the conspiracy theories about Donald Trump and Russia and the Steele dossier and the PP tape and all kinds of crazy shit. They're the same ones who told you that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. The people who use the word disinformation are the same idiots who spread disinformation. They fall prey to it. They are not the ones who should be deciding what is true and what is not. They are not the people who should be putting some government imprimatur, some some seal of government approval that something is true or false. This is dangerous. It's a terrible idea and it is dangerous. And it goes right back to what I was talking about. I worry about the concentration of power. I worry about the concentration of power in an oligarchy, in an whether it's elected or unelected, I worry about the concentration of power. And I worry less when it's elected, but some bureaucrat appointed to a disinformation governance board, she's not elected. And I don't see how you can sit here and say Joe Biden is doing a good job when the economy is in a recession because of him. Inflation is running north of 8%. We're spending billions and billions and billions on this shadow uh, uh, a war, on this, on this, this, this uh, proxy war in Ukraine. He's not doing a good job. That's it for now. Thanks for joining. Please remember to uh, check us out on Substack, leebressler.substack.com. You can subscribe. For free, you can become a paid subscriber. We appreciate it either way. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon.